Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We have a very special guest. This is Jill Santapolo. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell us about you. About me. Oh, man. So I am a writer. I am the publisher of Philomel Books, which is a children's book imprint at Penguin Random House. I am also a mom to a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I am currently on book tour for my newest novel, Stars in an Italian Sky. And you are perhaps too modest to say this, but you are a New York Times bestselling author. That is true. is that weird to talk about like you know is is it a weird thing to throw in when people are like hi nice to meet you and you're like hey I'm Jill yeah I think I don't know if I've ever been in a scenario where I've been like hi I'm Jill I'm a New York Times bestselling author nice to meet you but let's normalize that right (laughs) yes own it it's wonderful you've worked hard we're proud of you it's it's all these good things so we have a lot of writers here who I imagine would like to be New York Times bestsellers someday but let's start at the beginning how did you find your agent um so because I I work in publishing. I meet agents all the time. And there was one book deal that I had done with this agent who was so super nice on the phone when we did this deal. And I was writing some things and then I didn't have an agent. And she had said to me, you know, this was our first deal together. I'd love to work with you some more. Why don't we have a celebratory lunch? Cause we just closed this deal. And I said, that sounds great. Cause you do that sometimes. So we went and had lunch. This is, you know, pre COVID when actually people had lunch all the time. People were in the office all the time. And we had lunch and we talked not about my writing at all. We were just talking and getting to know each other. And she was super lovely. And um, she said to me, so I'm assuming you have an agent, you know, I know you write. And I said, actually, I don't right now. And she said, Oh, well, are you looking for one? And I said, I don't really think so. I'm, you know, I'm just writing some, a series that was an IP series for Simon and Schuster. They gave me the, you know, the concept and it's just a, I'm just the fingers writing the story. And she's like, well, do you have other projects? And I was like, there are some things I'm thinking about, you know, I might want to write an adult novel. I'm not really sure. And she was like, well, if you want, send me your stuff. If I like it, I'll rep you. And if I don't, that's cool too. And I was like, all right, well, I'll think about it. Thanks for the offer. And I actually wasn't going to send her anything, not because I didn't like her, because I did. I thought she was really, really awesome and really smart. But because I was not really, you know, I was writing this, this IP series that had a contract. I didn't really need an agent for that. And this adult novel I was writing was so far in the future. I had, you know, a handful of chapters, but nothing really much else. But I went out for dinner that night with a college friend of mine and I told him the story and he was like, so you're sending her your pages, right? And I was like, well, no, I wasn't going to. And he's like, come on, just send her your pages. What do you have to lose? So I sent her my pages and it was a Friday and she called me first thing Monday morning. And she was like, I have a lot of thoughts, but bottom line is I would love to work with you if you want to work with me. And that was how we met. So my agent is Miriam Altschler at the DeFiori agency. And we've been working together now since I think 2016. This is really interesting. And there's something in this that I find surprising. Like, were you nervous sending off those first pages as someone in the industry? Because I kind of sensed that from the way you talked about it. No, I'm not going to send around. I'm not sure. You know, do you have that same feeling as the rest of us feel, even though you are so, you know, embedded? A hundred percent. I mean, I felt like I wasn't, like it wasn't a completed manuscript. 
it wasn't even like fully polished pages. I mean, they were polished as much as you can polish a book before you know how it ends, you know, because I feel like I always get to the end and then retool the beginning a little bit so that it matches better, you know. So it sort of felt like I was sending off something that like wasn't quite ready for other people to see. But I think probably, you know, I could trust the fact that she knew what stage this was in, right? She knew I wasn't sending her a polished manuscript. So was kind of looking at it differently. Yeah. I mean, I think that that sounds really scary. I saw a submission cross my desk once that said, this is a pen name. I am an agent. Let me know if you want more information. And I saw that and I was like, that is exactly what I would do. (laughs) Because I think it's extra scary because it's like, if they absolutely hate it, what is that going to make them think about the other work that you do in the book space, you know? So it's kind of more vulnerable than anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hadn't even thought of that, but that is totally true. That is totally true. If she if she didn't like my writing, she'd be like, I'm never selling her another book. She probably can't end it. I mean, hopefully not and probably not. But like, that's what your brain does. Yeah, right. right. No, of course. Worst case scenario always. Well, I'm so glad that your friend egged you on. Can you tell us about where the idea came from for this book? Because I believe that was inspired by somebody in publishing too, wasn't it? Yes. So Stars in Italian Sky was a sort of product of my husband and my honeymoon in the summer of 2019. So my family is half Italian. My father's side is Italian and his mother's side is Italian. And he has a lot of cousins who are still in Italy. So when we went on our honeymoon, we decided that for a week of our honeymoon, we were going to basically like traverse Northern Italy and see all of his cousins, um, which was super fun. Some of them had come to our wedding, so I had met them before and some of them hadn't been able to. So, you know, I was meeting them for the first time. But before we, we embarked on that journey, we were in Milan, which is where my Italian publisher is. So her name is Christina. She's awesome. And when we were having a meeting with her, she was talking to me and she's like, so what are you, what's, what are you working on next? And I was in the process of finishing everything after. So I hadn't really even thought about, you know, what idea I wanted to turn to next. And she was like, I think you should write a book set in Italy. I think you should write a family story set in Italy because, you know, you have roots here. Your husband has roots here. You clearly love the country. Like, that would be really cool. And um, I was like, yeah, that would be cool. But sort of put it in the back of my head because I wasn't really looking for a new idea. And also, I didn't really know what I would write about in Italy. Like, I didn't live there, you know. And then we were visiting my husband's family and his mother has this one cousin. It's a man who's in his 80s. And I think of him as the man who would be count because had the Italian nobility not been abolished with the monarchy right after World War II, he would have been the Count of Saluzzo and the Marquis of Roccadibaldi. And the family still has this like huge abbey that they had from the time that they were all noble. And there's like, it has its own chapel with this stone in the floor that was blessed by the Pope in the 1600s. I mean, it's like bananas, bananas. So we were there and this man is his um, sister was there too. And she was telling us about the family and then about the institutional referendum of 1946. And I was like, I need a little more information here. Clearly, I didn't pay enough attention in world history. Like what what exactly is that? And she was like, well, that was when everybody voted to end the monarchy and then with it, the nobility. And I was thinking about the fact that this man who would be count was probably about 10. And he had this whole 
sort of future that he expected would be his future. And then like this promised power was just dissolved by popular vote. And it was also the first time in Italy that women voted nationally. And I was thinking about how like intense of a time that must have been and how intense of an experience that must have been. And then my husband and I always joke. So that's his family, right? With the man who would be count. And my family is descended from shoemakers. And we were saying like, if we were around in, you know, earlier times and we had gotten together, it would have been such a scandal that like the shoemaker's daughter and the, the you know, noble son or whatever were getting together. So I thought, well, what if that sort of thing happened? If there was someone in his early 20s who was going to be count and he falls for the daughter of a tailor and then this referendum happens and they find their families on opposite political sides and, you know, the class divide is just kind of broken open. And, you know, what would that do to their relationship? How would it change it or challenge it? So that's sort of where the seed of the story started. I love that. So so we have the concept, but we still have to go back in time. So walk, you know, all the writers out there through the level of research that you did. I did a bunch of research before I started writing. I read fiction and nonfiction kind of set in that time and place. I read a ton about Barolo and winemaking because I wanted to have a bunch of it set in that region. And then I randomly found Italian professors on YouTube who made videos and watched their videos. And then there was this one woman who made these great videos and they were in English and they were about the institutional referendum. And I sent her a message and I was like, hi, I'm an American author writing about historical fiction in Italy. And I saw your YouTube videos and I thought they were great. And I have some questions. Is there any chance you'd be willing to answer them? And she was like totally awesome. And she answered a whole bunch of questions for me. And then I sent a couple of texts to my husband's cousins. And I was like, I had this random question. Do you know the answer? And one of his cousins in particular was like, I don't know the answer, but I can set you up with this professor. And I don't know the answer, but I can set you up with this historian. And she was amazing and connected me with all of these people. And then I also reached out to, there's an Italian cultural society near where I live. And they have professors who teach online from Italy um, and are teaching like Italian culture and Italian language. And I wrote to them and I was like, this is what I'm looking for. Do you know, do you have anyone who was alive living in the area near Genoa in 19? 1946 that would remember what they could, you know, what it was like. And they wrote back to me and they're like, we don't have anyone who was alive then, but we have someone whose father was alive then. Do you want to talk to him? And I was like, I would love to talk to him. So I spoke to him on WhatsApp and sort of got color there. And then I started writing when I kind of had a framework and then did research kind of along the way when I would run into a question, like, for example, I wanted her to wear lipstick. And then I was like, wait, what was the like global supply chain like for lipstick after the war in Italy? Like, were th- was there lipstick in the shops? And also, if there wasn't, what did they do instead? And also, what color lipstick would she wear? And then I would like get a whole sort of wormhole of research there. And then when I finished, the same Christina, my publisher from Italy, she was like, do you want me to read for fact checking? And I was like, I would adore it if you read for fact checking. And she grew up in Asti. So she has a wine background too. So she read and gave me so many amazing comments that actually cracked me up. I mean, to, the, to things like... Like they would never drink this wine before that wine at a wedding or whatever. And she's like, here are your choices of what wine they could drink. And she was like, and here are the train timetables from 1946. 
and they actually couldn't go to this place from this place. So you have to change this, the train station they go into. So she was like really on it. And she was like, and I think Italian Vogue didn't actually start into like the magazine, you know, three years afterwards. So you probably want to look for a different Italian fashion magazine. Like here's where you can find some. So she was like a goddess of all goddesses and like really got the details like really, really realistic. So oh my I, gosh, I love this so much. Like, tell me, tell me, tell me that you went like, you know, walking down the street and you went into a wine store and you're like, I would like a bottle of wine from 1944. Um, can, I have the, <laughs> can I have the receipt for that? Cause that's a tax rate. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine recently, he finished reading the book. He's a, a high school friend who I haven't seen in person in a million years, but he's read all my books, which is so kind of him. And he sent me a message and he was like, so is the 1944 vintage actually really good? Um, and I said, you know, from what I've read, it is though 1945 is better. And he was like, do we need to like go buy these? And like, we'll both check them out. We'll compare notes. It's <laughs> like, maybe we should do that. I know. I, I, you know, it's funny, the things that, that you glob onto in a book. And I would say that the red lipstick, the wine, like all of those things, like your attention to detail made me feel as a reader that I just trusted your narrative. Like I, I didn't ever, I mean, and what, what do I know? Right. What do I know about living there? I was just there and I didn't ever question being there because you had the contemporary and then you had the now and then timeline. So, so I think that you're very successful with that. Thank you. I also liked that I trusted that even though all these potentially very intense things were going on, as soon as I got like too sad, you like switched out and you're like, okay, we're happy again. Let's look at some food. Let's look at some wine. Here's some romantic stuff. So did you purposely do that? Like, did you have a line where you're like, okay, this is as sad as it's going to get change gears, that kind of thing? Or were you just like broad emotional and aesthetic range? Let's go. I think, you know, I didn't have like an official in my head, like, okay, when we get to this point, I'm going to switch. But I think, you know, I was writing this during the pandemic. It was a bit of an escape. And I, I think I didn't want anything to get too sad because during the pandemic, I didn't want to read anything too sad. Like I just didn't want to go there because everything was so sad that, that I think I was, I was just because of the headspace I was in, I was putting the brakes on myself and saying like, I don't want to get into this any further. This is as sad as I can handle it. So like, let's now, let's now get on to the next thing that we have to talk about, you know? You, you didn't make it seem like it was, you know, fake happy at any point. It just, it did a really lovely job of like, there's enough contrast that it was poignant, but not so much that I was like, oh, I have to put this down. Yeah. I feel like with, um, with my first novel with the light we lost, like people message me with like sob faces afterward. And they're like, I just finished reading your book and this is what I look like. And it's like, like mascara dripping down people's faces. And I, I didn't want to go there with this one. That's like, so interesting. They're like, here's my reaction. You will see it. <laughs> on Instagram DMs. It's pretty awesome, actually. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I think for me, one of the saddest, but also most hopeful, and it's cool that it's both moments, is when there are stuffed animals made out of coats. Could you talk about that? <laughs> you know, it was one of those things that I just, it seemed like the right thing to put in at the time. I wanted to, at the very beginning, kind of telegraph some information to the readers about Giovanna. And I wanted one of the things that they know about her, that readers know about her right off the bat, to be her talent for sewing. 
because it is. And then also her compassion and her empathy, um, which I think is also a huge part of her character and why she and Vincenzo connect. And so, so I sort of created that there and it just for some reason felt right. And then as I was like going through the manuscript and coming back to that point, and I was like, where did that even come from? And I was remembering, which I still have in my house, after my father died in 2015, my mom took a bunch of his ties and she sent them off to this person on Etsy who made them into these beautiful pillows. Like she took the pieces of the tie and she made a sunburst out of the tie ends and like cut a circle of a different tie for the center and gave one of those pillows. My mom gave one of those pillows to um, each of my sisters and, and myself and, and she had one too. And there was just something that's still really special to me about like seeing that pillow on my couch and knowing that there are like memories of my father baked into that pillow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the idea for the stuffed animals came from. It would be like essentially the stuffed animal version of, you know, turning ties into a pillow so that you have, you have like a comfort object, but it's doubly comforting because it has this memory of this person you love and care about. Mm -hmm. So lovely. It was a lovely detail. Um, for all of you out there listening, we actually have an audience today. Um, we have some great questions. Jessica, can we pull some people up to ask some questions now? Hi, hello. Uh, thank you so much for uh, meeting with us and, and doing this. Um, Stars in Italian Sky sounds like a wonderful book, and I can't wait to read it. How long did it take you to write? What did you learn through your writing process? And what would you change about your writing process? And uh, I believe you answered this, so I apologize. How long did it take you between uh, writing your book and the completion to uh, finding your literary agent? Thank you. So it took me, I started the book in probably June of 2020, and I finished it in, I think, May of 2022. So almost two years, not quite two years. I handed in a draft of it in February of 22. And then I went back and forth with my editor for a little while until the end of May. So essentially it was about two years. And I learned, I learned a lot through this writing process because it was the first book that I wrote as a mom. So I was pregnant when I started it. And then my daughter was born in December of 2020. So these are, I, I call this book and my child, my two pandemic babies. So then I had to figure out sort of how to write with a newborn and then, you know, with a slightly older baby and on maternity leave from my editing gig and then back at my editing gig. So I think, you know, what I learned from the process in writing, for writing this was really how to recalibrate my life so that I could write and do my job and be a mom, which was sort of a third sort of strand of life that I now had to weave into everything. And what would I change? You know, I think, I think, you know, there was, there's so much just trial and error in figuring out how to balance time and what works. I wish the one thing I would change is I wish I could get there sooner. Um, but I don't know if that's a realistic wish, because I think you just do have to try different, different methods until you figure out what's going to work. And I think because my child kept changing, you know, the time that I had kept changing. So, so it kind of finally settled into what more or less is functional for me. And I think, you know, I'll keep tweaking that as it goes. And as far as, so the, my literary agent, I acquired with my first novel. So that was, that was back in, in 2016. So this one, she and I were already partnered up for this book. 
And I'm sure a lot of people ask about the time aspect, but mentally, how do you switch between editing and writing so you don't start editing your writing? So when I was in graduate school, I went to the Vermont College of Fine Arts and um, have an MFA from there. And part of that program, you had to write 40 pages a month and you had to hand them in to your mentor. And I'm not really sure what happened if you didn't, but it was the threat was sort of like you'd get kicked out of the program. I don't know if that was really true or not, but there were definitely people who left the program. So maybe they weren't writing 40 pages. I don't know. But because of that, I sort of trained myself to just turn off any internal editors because if I edited my stuff as I went, there is zero chance I would have written 40 pages in a month, like absolutely zero chance. So for, you know, the two years of the program, I just had to switch off that internal editor to get things done. So it became a muscle memory thing that I can do, you know, that I can just sort of say, okay, you're in writing mode now. You can't go back. You can't go back. You have to go forward. And, you know, now sometimes I'll go, I'll go as far as I can go. And then I'll realize like, oh my goodness, actually, like I need her to do X, Y, Z thing so that at this point I can shift here. And then I will go back and edit, like, let's say 50 pages or 60 pages or something. And then once I've inserted the thing that I needed to happen and gotten back to where I started, where I had ended previously, I start up again with all that information there. And then I just try and write as long as I can until I hit another point where I'm like, wait, I need to set something up again and then kind of go back. But yeah, it was, it was really because of those 40 pages a month in grad school where I was just like, I have to learn how to turn this off because if I don't, I'm not going to finish this program. I love that. Like, that's such a clever way to, um, to just make sure that you keep going and keep going and keep going to give yourself a, a list like that. Yeah. Hi, I'm a huge fan. So this is exciting. I'm just curious more about your writing process. Like what's the most challenging part for you? Is it getting that initial first draft out? Is it farther along in the editing and revising process? Um, it's definitely that first draft. I feel like once I have words on a page, I can fix them. And maybe that's because I have been editing for so long that like that's just sort of easier for me to fall into. But I can, you know, I can look at things and say like, oh, this sort of is here. So let's pull this back here. And that got lost and maybe we don't need it anymore. And revising is is when I'm so happy. That first initial draft for me is is a lot harder because I feel like I'm getting to know the characters. I'm getting to know how they respond to things. I'm getting to know how they talk. I'm getting to know what their touch points are. So especially the first, I want to say like hundred or so pages before I really, like, as I'm getting to know everything, though, that's, that's hard for me. And then it gets a little bit easier as I'm like sailing through, because now that I've developed the characters a bit more, I know how they'll act, you know? So if I put them in a scene, I kind of the scene almost writes itself because I've set up the character for myself um, and then they kind of build the plot. So yeah, and then that line editing and polishing. I, my, my cheat for that is to read my whole manuscript out loud because I can hear things a lot differently when I'm saying them out loud and listening to myself read than if I'm just reading them and like skimming them on the page. So um, I found line editing difficult until I found out about that cheat. Hey, um, and we have a great question about marketing too. And Jill, I am curious about how that um, seems to you since you've been on both sides of the desk, what the marketing is yeah. like. Well, Jill, it's really interesting to hear your journey. And I love all the uh, research that you did 
Uh, I think you answered most of my questions already, except I want to talk to you a little, hear you talk about um, now that the book is out, what the marketing plan is and what Putman mm -hmm. is doing for you. And then what are you doing for your own um, publicity mm -hmm. plan? So um, a while ago, I was talking to some author, and I don't even remember who it was at this point, but it was someone that I respected a lot. And they said to me that they always earmark 10% of their advance um, for their own marketing and promotion. And I really liked that idea because it meant that I went in with my own expectation that I was going to spend up to X amount of dollars on this book and that I could budget for that. And then I could do things that I wanted to do. And I wasn't reliant entirely on the publisher for doing all of the things that I wanted to do. So that's kind of one thing that I've done. And then I've used that, that 10% in a whole bunch of different ways that I just thought would be fun and interesting or that I'd seen before, or, um, you know, I wanted this for for this book, I wanted to throw myself a publication party in Washington, D.C. And, you know, parties with food and wine and all of that are not necessarily in a publisher's budget. But I was able to say to the publisher, you know, because they they were going to set up an event with a bookstore. And I was like, will the bookstore do it offsite? If I put this together, will they come and sell books there? And we'll have the conversation there. And we'll do the same thing. But everyone just gets food and wine. And, and I get to feel like I have a party. And, the you know, the publisher was like, yeah, sure. If that's what you want to do, we're totally cool with that. And they, they helped me organize and they, they spoke to the bookseller and they, you know, and in a conversation partner and, and we, we moved the bookstore event to an offsite party. So, but they do, um, they do a lot of marketing and I think, you know, for them, it, it's been different for each book. And I think they kind of create a bespoke plan for each book, looking at the reactions that they're getting and the responses that they're getting and where those are coming from. And then, you know, what they feel like they can do to promote it in places where it would be the most effective. So, um, you know, I do, my, my agent actually asks for a marketing and publicity plan, probably about three months before the book comes out to sort of see what they're thinking. And then if there's anything that we have questions about, we ask them then. And then that's also when I tell them like, these are the bananas things that I want to do. And, you know, is there any way you can help me with XYZ and I can handle you know, ABC or whatever. I have a follow-up for that. So of all the different things that you've done over your numerous books, what was your best like bang for your buck? What was your best? Like I spent this, but I got this. Do you have one? It's mm, a good question. So there was, I think for coolness factor for one of my books, I was traveling on the Long Island Railroad for and for like a bunch of things one summer. And I saw this like notice that said, you know, like put your billboard here. And it was like on the, the like in the train and on the like side of the train station. And I had in my head like, well, I still have marketing budget from my own 10%. I wonder what that costs. And I like looked into it and I, I found out what it cost and it was like within my budget. And I went to the publisher and I was like, okay, I want to do this thing. I think it's a crazy thing, but who knows what's going to happen from it? Like people are sit on the train every day. Maybe a lot of people will buy my book. And they were like, well, if you want to do it, we're happy to design the, you know, the design for you. So I said, that would be great. And we did that. And I don't know how much it actually like moved units, but a lot of people like, 
posted pictures of it or sent me pictures of it. And, and uh, I feel like it, it, so it wasn't just the people who were on the train that saw it, it then became like a social media thing. So that was maybe one of the, the things that I, I at least enjoyed. I enjoyed spending money on because I felt like <laughs> I got to see it a whole bunch. I think that's like goals. We're all like, I want my book on a train. I want it on a bus, right? yes. an airport. I mean, but that's something so simple, right? Like I think we, and we've been talking how social media sometimes isn't working like it used to, you know, that the algorithms seem a little off and, and thinking outside the box. Yeah. And what if one day you were there and you were just like, you had your books and you're like, that's me on the train. I mean, maybe not you, that was like me, maybe I would do that. But I mean, like so many cool opportunities that you just have no idea, you know, like what is going to influence sales or just push the, push the word of mouth. That's, that's genius. But it's fun too. So people wanted to turn it into organic marketing for you. Right, right. And I I feel like, you know, because I, I budget myself that freedom, I get to do fun things like that, you know, and it doesn't have to be 10%, you know, it could be 5%, it could be 2%, it could be a set, you know, amounts or whatever. Like, I think there, there are different ways to, to think about it. But I think, I think as a, as an author, it's just fun to have the freedom and the control to do what you want. And then to feel like it's part of your job to spend that and come up with something cool to do with it. Oh, that's nice. Okay. We have a question here. Come on down about how this book has changed your life. Hi. 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 So my question, question is, has your life changed in any ways since publishing, um, well, your first book and uh, subsequent books? Uh, if so, how? And were there any unexpected changes? I think my life has definitely changed since publishing The Light Be Lost. Um, in that, you know, before that I was writing books for kids, which I love doing, but I primarily thought of myself as an editor who writes books on the side and has fun with it. And I think when The Light We Lost came out, I started seeing myself differently. I started sort of seeing myself as a writer and an editor on equal footing. And, you know, they're just two things that I do in two parts of who I am. And I, I felt more comfortable sort of if someone asks me, sometimes I just say, yeah, I'm an novelist or whatever, if I, if I don't want to talk about publishing. And I think also it opened a lot of doors to meeting a lot of new people, um, to meeting a lot of new writers, to meeting, you know, adult writers who I hadn't really known before and had admired. And that was really cool. And, um, you know, it opened up opportunities because it was translated into so many languages. It's in 35 different languages, I think right now, you know, I got to fly to London, I got to fly to Italy, I got to chat with people, you know, all over the world, which was really, really exciting and fun. So we don't want to ask you too many spoiler questions, but we have a couple later in the book. Could you tell us a bit about the tradition involving the grapes for your characters? <laughs> so that, so, so in my book, there's a tradition where when every couple gets engaged, they go into a barrel and they stomp grapes, like old fashioned winemaking. Um, it's not how they really make wine very much anymore, but they go into a barrel, they stomp grapes, and then they use the must from that barrel to create their own vintage of wine. So I had read when I was reading about the history of winemaking and I was reading about the, uh, it's called a pestamento, which is the, the stomping. Um, I was like, that's so 
that's so something that like I think of when I think about you know winemaking it's like I don't know why that's an image and I was like it's really fun it's like a really fun image to me and and a cool part of winemaking and also something that seems like it's a tradition that could get carried forward and also the idea that like each couple has their own bespoke wine that they've created that it's like a sort of commemoration of the unification of that couple so while the the grape stomping was something I read about this tradition was something I made up and in uh, at least in the contemporary story, it leads to, to a bit of sexy times between the couple. <laughs> Do you just another question about your book. Did you have a favorite couple? So there's two couples in this book. There's, you know, no spoilers. There's two couples in this book. And did you prefer one couple over the other, or one romance over the other, or one time frame over the other? I think, I mean, I, I like both couples and I enjoyed writing about both of them, especially when they're, they like start intertwining with each other. I think, I think I probably have a slight soft spot for the 1946 couple because I was with them for so long. Like I got to see their lives sort of unfold mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, Cassandra and Luca's lives are still on the precipice of something. They were my favorite you know? too, because they were just so sweet when they're old and then like, oh, <laughs> you know, they're adorable. And if it's not too much of a spoiler, whose fault do you think it was for the breakup long ago? I mean, I think they're both at fault, but I kind of probably blame Vincenzo a little more. Same. Like they both made mistakes, but I think he made worse ones. We're also judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds like your book is dual timeline. I'm writing a dual timeline, dual POV story. And my question is, is it necessary for the two POV characters to meet? My story is about a mother-daughter duo who split ways early in the story. They only cross paths again towards the end through letters. But I'm told they must meet again for the story to work. Is that story specific or true regardless? I think to me, it's story specific. I think there needs to be some reason why both stories are being told. Like why in the same book? So, you know, one very easy way to make it clear why these two stories are one book and not two separate books is to intertwine the timelines and the POVs so that you see how one affects the other. And I think a lot of times having the characters connect with each other just makes it very clear to readers and makes them feel like the story is unified. But I, I think there are probably other ways to do that depending on how how you're writing the story. You know, do the, the POVs echo each other? Do they have scenes where they're, you know, in the same place at the same time, but they don't see each other? Do they have reactions because they're part of the same event? Like what is what is it that's gluing these two timelines together if the characters aren't interacting. And I think that's that to me is the must. The meeting is not the must, but the unification of the two stories in some way is the must. Oh, I like that. Julia, what did we not cover? We had some, we loved this book. You all. It really I really did. I, I was like, it felt like I was gossiping to my mom about these characters. I was like, oh my gosh, you will not believe what happened. He said this <laughs> and then she said that. And then, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm going back in. I know. I think at my house, I was like, don't you see I'm working? And stop talking to me. I'm working. They're like, you're not, I am working. You know, and that's the thing. I think it's a great read. It's like a, a read that you can just, 
it's escapism, it's family, but it has, you know, and there's, if we were going to all read this book and come together, there's a lot more of grittier stuff to kind of like gnar on here. So I think that you're hitting all the different spots when it comes to a good book. You want to be there with the characters. You want to, you know, plot wise feel that you know where you are and the settings need to support the storylines, which absolutely happens here. And it's a book that you want to read like as a book club and then come back and dive in a little more. So, you know, I will hope all of you guys go buy this amazing book and, you know, just really enjoy. Um, can you give us, what's your number one tip for writers, Jill? My number one tip for writers is to make time in your schedule to write. This is, seems like a duh thing, but it was a revelation to me when Jackie Woodson did, did a talk when I was in grad school and she opened up her, she had like a handwritten calendar diary and she opened it up and you could see that she had blocked out time that just said writing. And she was like, if somebody calls me and they're like, Hey, do you want to have brunch? I don't move writing. I say to them, no. I have plans. I'm writing. And, you know, can we meet for a drink at five or whatever it is? And that to me was this like, oh, I don't have to fit writing in around life. I can make writing a priority by scheduling it into my life and then scheduling other things around writing. And um, that's, I think, one of the biggest tips that I have for writers is you can work your life to make writing a priority. And then when it, you do that, it feels like a priority, if that makes sense. It does. I almost want everyone to like put it into their Google calendars now and send us a screenshot. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, Google calendar every day from this time to this time writing and then a couple cute emojis and then screenshot it and send it to us so we can be like, good job and very pretty calendar. You can blur everything <laughs> else out, of course, but I'd like to see that. That is wonderful. Jill, I'm so happy you could do this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Have All a great right. day, everyone. All right, All right. Bye. bye now. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.